I, I think two things are true at the same time. Evangelicals need to be far more Trinitarian than they are. And at the same time, I actually also believe they're far more Trinitarian than they even realize. Yes. Right? Because experientially, they, they most people don't believe that God is triune because they've studied it. They believe it because they've experienced the life-giving power of the Spirit. They worship the Son as they rest in the love of the Father, right? They, they experientially, and they're just trying to figure out how to articulate it. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Well, uh, I am... Have an opportunity to sit down uh, with Matthew Barrett. Um, we're talking about his new book, Simply Trinity. And uh, he contacted me, wanted to talk about John Owen. And so we want to bring together some of the themes he talks about and uh, some of the work of this great Puritan. Um, Matthew, it's great to be with you. I really, uh, it was it was a delight to read this in manuscript form. And I love how you woven together some careful theological work with, you know, mentions of back to the future you know and and personal anecdotes and you you at the beach in in uh, california as a fellow californian yeah. that was fun to read about so I, i'm happy for us to take some time together and and explore a few things together absolutely well um thank you kelly for uh for i mean the opportunity for the two of us to kind of uh, not just talk about something like inseparable operations, but Puritan like John Owen. We just don't get to do this every day. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was really, you know, when when I wrote the book and and sent it your way, uh, I thought I've I've got to send it over to to Kelly because uh, you've written, of course, you've written on the doctrine of the Trinity, but you've simultaneously written on the Trinity and John Owen, and so uh, you've you've kind of had a hand in both of those worlds mm. and and so i was really encouraged when uh when you read the book and and say hey i i think that um well you the mention of john owen especially in that last chapter chapter 10 yeah. uh, um uh i i wish i could have talked so much more <laughs> uh, yeah i know i could feel uh, that i could feel that that you want there there's more to be and you do bring him in at other times as well but yeah 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 that's right um so well, so thank you thank you so much um and uh, I, I was just gonna say one of the things that i think we both are in a strong agreement of is both the need to be careful in our trinitarian formulations for the sake of the church because this matters to people's lives this isn't an academic debate we really think this is about worship and and it and it's not so much just fencing it's cultivating a good and healthy communion with God. And so to commune with God, you really have to know who he is and, and how he works. And um, so I, I love to see that practical side as well. And uh, I do have a, a desire to see that spreading. And I, I do think it is. And I think it's one of the reasons your book's being well-received already. Yeah, I, I couldn't, I really couldn't agree with you and more because, uh, and I think even since the book has been out. I'm sure you've experienced this with, with some of your books as well, 
when you write on a doctrine as difficult as the Trinity, that's, those are deep waters and yeah. it can feel intimidating. Yeah. Uh, even to, even to people who've had theological training. Um, but one of the things that's been so encouraging to me is that uh, as people have been reading about the Trinity, they are also recognizing this, this is so crucial to what I believe as a Christian, to what I'm teaching my church, for example, right? whether it's a Sunday morning or our doctrinal statement or, or how I'm teaching just Christians in the pew. And then they're also rec- recognizing that, well, the way that I think about the Trinity that actually has implications then for everything from uh, prayer to yeah. worship itself to the way I even just approach this triune God and and have fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I've just been surprised, but also encouraged by just whether it's a lay person, a student, or a pastor, whoever it is. Uh, how often they have recognized this and said, yeah, okay, this is hard work. Mm. This is going to really stretch my mind and yeah. difficult at times, but it's, it's really worth it because, because of everything that's at stake. Yeah. I, think, I don't know if this has been your experience. Um, you know, I, I certainly it's been mine, but uh, the way the Trinity has been taught and passed decades even uh it's just so so contrary to and so different from the way that trinity uh has been taught in in the the christian tradition right so i'm noticing too that and this was part of you know uh my motive and reason for even writing the book was um i I, i'm noticing people are are saying wow this is this is just night and day (laughs) Yeah. Is that you know, the, yeah, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, no, okay. go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, I was just going to say, I, I didn't mean for, I didn't plan for us to talk about this, but as an aside, you know, it's, it's fascinating because, um, you know, in your book, you rightly have a lot of critiques of um, social Trinitarianism and, and some of those things, um, which, which I share those concerns. But it's interesting. I don't know if you know this, but my PhD, one of my PhD supervisors, I worked with theologian Colin Gutton and a historian Susan Hardman Moore. And um, but but Colin Gutton is a, a you know great example of social trinitarianism and and all of this. But but even with all the concerns, one of the things that was so attractive to me about Gutton was he really did want to take the serious the the Trinity seriously. Yes, and that is that you know I with the critiques, and I know you share this. Those are right impulses, right? And so it's fascinating to be studying under Gunton while Owen is my focus. <laughs> and, and, and that was a delight because Gunton actually, who he got interested in Owen, but actually didn't know him super well. Yeah. But um, we started introducing him to, you know, I, I actually led a seminar and he would attend a little tiny one, just a few of us grad students on, on the reform dogmatics um, Hepa and and Gunton was there, and we'd have these debates and discussions, and I'd show him things from Owen, and, and he was very receptive, you know. So it's interesting 
I think his critiques of Augustine, which would relate to some of what we're going to talk about and inseparable operations, I, I actually just think he's wrong on Augustine. But I don't think he's wrong in terms of having an impulse of some problems that can arise in the tradition when Trinitarian formula get divorced from worship. Uh, so I, I do actually think sometimes there was something to his concerns, even though I would say wrong solution yeah. or even problematic historical analysis. So yeah. all that to say, I'm happy to see interest in the Trinity and then hopefully interest in the Trinity more enriched by the tradition rather than at odds with the tradition. Right. Absolutely. And um, yeah, you know, I I think at some point in the past, you had mentioned some of your studies under Gunton. Mm. And uh, I find that so fascinating. You know, I I had read Gunton as a student many times and noticed, you know, how critical he or or even just his interpretation of someone like Augustine or the tradition at large and wanting to to push back against that. But at the same time, and and also I, I probably should add um uh even even the way that um gunton maybe more so in academia than than maybe at the church level but the way that gunton um uh, can get picked up as as kind of the the ex, the example of you know how we should proceed you know going forward and and uh noticing how attractive that was especially in in the last uh, century, uh, in the 20th century, how how appealing that was, especially in academia, and how sure. it would trickle down, you know, trickle down as it always does um, uh, into churches. Uh, but then, like you mentioned, um, I appreciated, on, on, on the other hand, I appreciated how he was trying to connect the dots between Trinity and worship. Um, I, 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 you know, during my student days, I was just immersing myself in John Owen for all kinds of reasons. I just yeah. kept coming back to him and uh, also felt that tension yeah. <laughs> to say, yeah. well, here's, here's John Owen and he's all, he also has that concern. Right. Um, but he seems to be, he does, he seems to be a bit more appreciative of, you know, an Augustine. Right. Yeah. Interpret, yeah, yeah. Interprets him. Uh, you know, very differently. So I, I very much resonate. I mean, you are, you have a more firsthand experience, um, but I very much, you know, resonate with, with what you said. Well, maybe we can use this to kind of, to further our discussion in a way I hadn't anticipated, but um, so I, I want to, maybe I'll use kind of a gut and concern to get at something, but let's start reminding, I, I want to ask you two words that we've used, you, you know, mentioned, we use a lot, but let's make sure everyone's following us. Will you first kind of remind us what is divine simplicity Mm. and then kind of remind us what is inseparable operations? Like kind of talk about, just frame those two a little bit, explain them. Yeah, glad to. Um, When we use a term like divine simplicity, I, I, I realize it's not a term that we're used to using today. Uh, we don't mean the way we usually use a word like simplicity as well. Something is basic or elementary or easy to understand. And that of course is not the way we're using it as, as in theology rather uh, simplicity is referring to that very crucial, essential belief that God is without 
parts uh, that he's not composed like we are composed or compounded or made up of, of different parts. This is crucial when we talk about divine attributes, attributes, whether it's love or, or holiness, uh, whether it's immutability uh, or, or God's wisdom, whatever attributes we are referring to, there can be a temptation to assume, well, these are parts that, that somehow make God up. And, and I, I see this all the time, you know, it's more accidental than anything, yeah. but um, sometimes uh, folks will assume that, well, God must be more loving than he is righteous or something like that. And so it's this simplicity is really crucial at this point to say, no, actually God is, uh, well, all that is in God just is God. And so there's good scriptural reasons why uh, we say God is love or he is holy or he is wise. He doesn't just possess something called wisdom. He actually is all wise. Um, Or we could, one, one other way we could refer to this is, you know, a bit more theological, but to say God's essence is his attributes and his attributes is essence. Um, all that to say, when we come to the doctrine of the Trinity, simplicity is, is also crucial uh, because we don't want to think of the persons as uh, individuals very much as, you know, you and I are individuals. You have your own will. I have my own will. You're your own center of consciousness. I'm my own center of consciousness. At most, we might cooperate with each other uh, yeah. or we might say, oh, we have a, you know, we share this common thing called human nature. But even when we refer to it in that sense, it's it's not the type of you still remain your own individual and and you contribute in your own way. And I do in my own way. Well, we can assume sometimes in this very societal understanding of unity, we can just assume, Oh, that's, that just must be how the Trinity works. Well, uh, you know, I push back against that and argue, actually, when we talk about unity, triune unity, uh, that is, that assumption is insufficient, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it actually can be quite problematic. It can lead to, you know, it can start creeping towards tritheism for, you know, just to give one example. Um, rather, when we talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit aren't, you know, different parts that somehow add up or tally up to, to somehow make up God. Uh, that that certainly would be problematic in, in terms of hierarchy as well. You know, we might start assuming that, uh, one person is greater or another is lesser. One person is superior, another inferior. And you can see how this would <laughs> lead down some pretty dangerous paths. Um, so we want to avoid all that. But one of the ways that we can avoid those dangers is to, and Scripture does this very well, when it refers to the Lord as one, that basic confession, that Shema of the Old Testament. But we see this. Uh, picked up in the New Testament in a Trinitarian in Trinitarian language. Um, whenever Jesus, for example, says, "I am one with the Father," and he he doesn't mean that how you know you or I might mean that if we were to refer to you know knowing God and well, there's a certainly a creator creature distinction there. Well, Jesus means it in a very different sense, uh, and it certainly uh, is 
offensive to uh, those religious leaders at the time who recognize something of what he is saying and and consider it blasphemy. But if Jesus is right, well, then that speaks to the simplicity of the Trinity. One one way we can put this in a, a more, you know, to use our fancier theological language is to say um, these persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, aren't, you know, uh, individuals who go solo on their own. Rather, they are subsistences. Uh, you know, to use John Owen's language, they are subsisting relations, as he called yeah. them. Uh, or we, to use uh, some of the language of the fathers, we could say the, the one essence subsists, exists, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or has three modes of existence. And that's when we can start talking about the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, the Spirit is spirated. But yeah. let me let me jump in for a second here because maybe this will help. Uh, you know, because one of the things that is very common, and you know this, you know this kind of thing is that evangelicals, when they get taught the Trinity, it it's a collection of Bible verses. Yes. So you gather all the verses, God is one, then you get verses, Jesus is divine, spirit is divine, you know, th- this kind of thing. And then you you kind of throw them all together and hope something good comes out of that, right? And then, <laughs> You know, there's some there's some truth in what's going on there, but there's also some problems. Yeah. And so one of the common things that happens, well-meaning pastors, others say, well, God is one and God is three. And suck it up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and I think, you know, I'm someone who's I think paradox is incredibly important. I think we have to have space for it. I think it's mystery is really important to theology in general and the Trinity in particular. But this is an example of when people do that kind of move and it relates to divine simplicity, even when we talk about operations, there's a misunderstanding there, right? When you say, when you say God is one, and then you say, you know, how can God be one and three at the same time as a contradiction, isn't it? Well, that's not, we don't mean God is one and he is three in the same way. That's not what we mean. Right. So that's where what you're saying and this this language of, you know, subsistences sounds so scary. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> exactly. Try and help, you know, help them understand why. No, when we say God is one and, and, and three, we yeah. don't mean these are actually contra. We're not doing math here. Yeah. And the early fathers knew that. And I think we are like one, three. We don't know how, but let's just we know yeah. we're supposed yeah. to believe it. But actually, there's careful theology here. That's exactly right. And I understand it can be intimidating, um, but we have to avoid that temptation to say, to, number one, like you mentioned, just kind of approach the training like it's just a formula. Right. And then where there are gaps, you know, one and three, we just, we sort of just punt at that point and say, no one knows, uh, but we just, we know it must be so. And so we, we sort of believe it and move on. Yeah. Um, which I guess, you know, it's a minimalistic way of approaching the Trinity. And so hopefully uh, there's at least some enough truth there to, to kind of safeguard us. But I think like you're, you're hinting at this formulaic approach. Um, it, it also tends to leave us just vulnerable very vulnerable 
And I don't know that people always realize this, but it can actually make us sound or or at least lend ourselves towards Protestant liberalism, Mm -hmm. believe it or not. That might sound shocking to say, but I mentioned that because when you look at the history of, say, Protestant liberalism, history that's not too far off (laughs) from our own day, well, you'll start to notice that whenever the Trinity is talked about in more theological ways or whenever uh, the the tradition before us is looked at, it's it's looked at as, oh, that's speculative. and 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 then what happens next is there's just this inability to see not only who the Trinity is, but then how that then connects to the rest of Christian theology. And um, that can that can also be that can also that well we've seen some of the effects of that, but sometimes I think we don't always realize we might be opening ourselves up to that type of tendency. Sure. And and yeah, and just to make sure they're they're tracking with you. So when we say God is one and three, we don't mean same thing. They're not the same thing. Contradictory. That there is this one God who is you know, and we're talking about the essence of God. Yeah. But there, and this is where it gets back to Gunton. Gunton would warn, and rightly so, in my opinion, about the danger of a God behind the gods. Right. And so the the concern would be that you kind of have Father, Son, and Spirit, and then behind Father, Son, and Spirit, you have another reality, and that other reality is like another God. It's like a you know a fourfold thing, or that's the real God, and then you have the persons, right. which is actually never what the tradition said, but but it is a misappropriation of the tradition when you start to get that way. So when we say God is one, we mean there is one God and the tradition speaks of the divine essence, right? Something yeah. like that. But, but that divine essence, what is God, that God is always and eternally subsisting as father, son, and spirit. And there is no God other than the divine persons, right? That is There's so no fourth reality. Yes. That what you just said uh, is so key. Is so key because you're right. Um, and some of this comes from Gunton. There's a this tendency to to look at the West in particular and say, "Oh, they want this God behind the God." Uh, as if, okay, we can talk about persons, but then there's this essence, and that's where we really want to focus. Um, and I think it's a misreading. I do. I think it's a misreading of you know the West uh, and, a, and a misreading of the East, as if the East they just want to focus on the three persons and don't have any concern for simplicity or the essence, you know, that sort of thing. Um, one of the ways I, I like to try to kind of m- help people move beyond this uh, misreading is to say, well, isn't it, isn't it fascinating when you pick up, say, an Athanasius or a Cappadocian father? Have you ever noticed that when they do talk about the three persons, uh, let's just take the son, for example, they love to talk about Right. This is the whole background of the Nicene Creed. They love to talk about eternal generation, and they'll say uh, they go to great lengths to, to argue that um, this is biblical. It's also crucial theologically for understanding the Trinity, and so they'll argue that this is what what is it that distinguishes the Son as Son? It's the it's the very basic crucial fact that 
he is son because he is begotten from his father. Uh, that's what why we call father, father, and son, son. And then they're quick to qualify and say, oh, of course, this is not something that occurs in time. Um, there never was a time when the son was not. So this is an eternal begetting. But all that to say, what I find so fascinating, and I love to point this out to people is, you know, you as a Christian today, you 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 love to say uh, the son is equal with the father and homo usios, you know, that type of language. But did you, have you ever noticed that when the fathers talk about this doctrine of eternal generation, they not only think this is what distinguishes the son as son, but they're putting this forward to simultaneously safeguard the son as equal with the father. And so they will say things, Athanasius loves to talk this way, and John Owen picks up this language too, love to say things like, the son is forever the offspring of the father's essence. And they'll say things like, the son is begotten from the father's substance or essence or nature. Why is it that they are phrasing it that way? I think it's because for them, like you were mentioned, there's no not this God behind the God. The very persons they are referring to in the son in this example, well, this is the son, yes, who's from the father, but he's from the father's divine essence. And so for that reason, uh, it not only distinguishes the son as son, but it also safeguards his co-equality with the father. And that is their way of affirming divine simplicity. To say this is not, it's not as if you got the sun and then there's this essence some somewhere out there behind. No, that the, the yeah. sun is from the very essence of, of the father himself. So if you if we go about it that way, actually that sounds very much in the same tune as say John's gospel. Yeah, I think uh, but I, I guess part of where I would um I, I agree with that. But what what I what we're doing is we're picking on we're picking up on the richness and the best of the tradition, right? Like Augustine, Athanasius, Cappadocian fathers, Owen, Calvin. But I do think historically, and and we should move on. But historically, there is a reason why Unitarianism starts to develop in the 17th century and the 18th yeah. century, and that you have some church. I do think Immanuel Kant's wrong when he says there's no practical value of, in, in the Trinity. But I think he's right. That's part of what I'm trying to get. That's where I think Gunton is right in terms of it's not an accurate criticism of Augustine or Calvin, but it is out there. Yeah. And and so there's a reason why the Trinity starts getting neglected. That just didn't yeah. happen. Yeah. And so when when the and that's part of the idea is when when our speak our speech and the way we kind of work when people are constructing worship services in a way that you kind of do have this undifferentiated Godhead, that's the most important thing. Yeah. It's, and, and the, and the Trinity is not John Owen, as you, you may remember this, but his, his book on communion with God, with the father, the son and the spirit distinctly in the 17th century, he was attacked for that. Yeah. And explicitly attacked and had to defend himself against tritheism and stuff. Right. right. But part of it is he, he really is showing the significance well, the fact that he can be attacked in the 17th century is showing you this movement toward something like, uh, uh, you know, John Biddle in the background. Again, that's a different thing, but Socinianism, this yeah. rationalistic approach to scripture, Biddle 
had memorized almost the entire New Testament in Greek. <laughs> he could pile up the proof text to you. Yeah. But because he was approaching in a rationalistic way, he just rejects the Trinity. That's right. You know, and so those those are the dangers of he's still affirming there's a God. Yeah. But then he does he can't make sense of things like homoousius and that kind of stuff. So all, all that to say, yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating thing. We do believe that there's, you know, God is one, but we don't believe he's three in the same way he's one. Right. That that Father, Son, and Spirit are eternally three subsistences, which <laughs> this is who the one God is. And 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 that, yeah, that's the, anyways, yeah. And that's Kelly, that's that's so crucial, right? Because when we then as John Owen does, when we when we start to turn our attention from you know who God is apart from us to who God is in relation to us. Sometimes this is called the economy, um, take, whether it's creation or providence or salvation. What, what you just said is so crucial because, because at that point, uh, we, we then have to look at the many ways that Scripture describes Father, Son, Spirit at work in salvation, for example. Um, but we do so like you just mentioned, trying to be faithful both to the simplicity of the persons and to the way that they are are then distinct as Father, Son, and Spirit. And, yeah. and so we, this is one of the reasons I think maybe Joe, John Owen got, was misunderstood because at one point he might be trying to focus, for example, on uh, Father, Son, and Spirit as distinct. That doesn't mean, though, that he is denying divine simplicity. In another place, he'll turn and he'll oh, yeah. put a lot of emphasis there. So, part just like reading the Bible, um, we we have to to be a bit more holistic, I think, and in the way we even read, you know, a historical figure like John Owen to make sure we're doing them doing them full justice. Well, and and let me let's push on this a little bit because. You know, when people hear about divine simplicity, God is one, it sounds very foreign. It sounds very almost mechanistic, like you're trying to force this grid onto God or something, yeah. right? And then they hear about inseparable operations. And I've, you know, I've read people say, you can't, you can't, how do you hold to a Trinity? You know, you've heard this. You can't believe in simplicity undermines Trinity because there's only one. You can't have three, which is the yeah. same misunderstanding, but then inseparable operations. And so, for example, you know, Augustine in his sermon 52, where he's he's unpacking Jesus's baptism. Mm. It's really a wonderful example where, you know, Augustine is accused. He starts with the one. That's not true. He often starts at the three. It just depends what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. But when he's, you know, at the River Jordan, Augustine, he, he, he he's he's an honest theologian. He's like, the, the, it's a great example where Augustine and Owen is picking up on this tradition. Augustine has to say, the father is not baptized. Yeah. Right. The father doesn't become incarnate. The spirit doesn't die on a cross. Right. And, and so in Augustine's language, he's talking about, you know, who's born of Mary. How does this work? So let's, let's talk a little bit about yeah. inseparable operations because yeah. when people hear inseparable operations, that sounds like, or we even use the fancy Oprah ad extra indivisia suit, right? The external works of the triune God are undivided or indivisible. To someone, you can forgive someone for saying 
if they're indivisible, it sounds like they do the exact same thing in the exact same way. Yeah. How does that fit with the biblical material? Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned Augustine. Um, that whether it's his sermon, he also talks this way in his book on the Trinity. Yeah. Where he he will say things like, uh, "Father, Son, and Spirit are inseparable," and so they work inseparably. Yes, exactly. And and that's a really important, uh, basic, fundamental uh, statement for him because when he then turns to the works, these external works, as you mentioned, whether it's creation, providence, or salvation, um, Augustine is going, he, he really wants to avoid some of the errors of, say, tritheism, um, which, or, or just some of the common ways that we tend to think of unity when we look at salvation. We might think, oh, the Father can go off solo, or, or okay, they work together, but it's, it's, it's a cooperation, uh, and, and it's merely a cooperation, as if you know, they all kind of have their own wills and they, they sort of get along. Uh, or I've heard this too, where there's, there's sort of this division of labor. And so, uh, right. you know, they, they kind of act by themselves and sort of divvy up, you know, what, whatever tasks they need to accomplish. You see that when, when it gets sucked into the gender discussions, yes. I see that kind of thing show up a lot. And so That's like, funny. man is like this. And so the father does these things and the son. So we have to, yeah, we have to be real careful about that. Yeah, that's that's a, exactly right. It especially gets sucked up in those discussions in which sometimes it's even said, oh, well, uh, you know, if the father's, you know, a greater glory, he can even act apart from the son. Right. Or go solo. We want to, to Augustine is saying, Let, let's avoid those pitfalls. Yeah. Uh, and notice how he's connecting the two. He's saying, why is it that the persons work inseparably? It's because they are inseparable in essence with one another. And so yeah, he's, and that's the key in essence. That's yeah. right. And so there's where our doctrine of divine simplicity actually pays huge dividends whenever we are reading the scriptures and it talks about salvation mm-hmm. to say, Father, Son, Spirit, they're not. They're, we're, we're not dividing them here. Actually, they work inseparably no matter what work of salvation we are referring to. It could be, it could be uh, adoption. It could be uh, reconciliation, on and on. Now, all that said, the next question then is, well, okay, uh, so they're inseparable. They have one will. They're one in essence. And so they act inseparably. They perform this single action we call salvation, for example. Well, then, uh, why then, when we come to say Jesus' baptism, do we see may see a gospel writer say, Father spoke, speaking of his son, uh, then we have the spirit, you know, represented in the dove, descending, etc. Right. Those are very common instances throughout the gospels. Well, I, you know, I'd love to hear you, Kelly, on this, but I think the first thing I would want to say is this is this is the reason why um, those before us have used a word like appropriation. Yeah. Um, to say, uh, yes, the, the Father, Son, Spirit act as one. They are inseparable. And at the same time, um, when we talk about, say, the Father here or the Son here or the Spirit here, um, they 
are, in this case with Jesus' baptism, well, uh, isn't it appropriate for the Spirit, for example, to descend upon the Son? Uh, because uh, remember, this is the Spirit who is from the Father and the Son from all eternity. And so this is one of the reasons why uh, we say things like, oh, these missions, which we see in salvation history, these are reflective. They reflect their, their eternal processions. Missions reflect processions. This is a beautiful way of, of speaking. John Owen, you know, this is not original to, to me or any. I mean, John Owen loves to speak this way because you can, you're simultaneously holding on to divine simplicity. And at the same time, you are uh, putting your finger, per se, on, say, the Son or the Father or the Spirit uh, when you're reading the scriptures. But you, you're always trying to do that in a way that is faithful and consistent. And maybe we could use the word fitting in a way that corresponds to who those persons are and how they are distinct as Father, Son, Spirit outside of creation and salvation. Uh, there's a lot more to say. How 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 would you? Yeah, articulate I, it, I think um, you know it's very interesting. So take Owen as an example, and he's just reflecting Augustinianism here. I, when people have doubted that, they've just misunderstood him. To be honest, but so he's very unflinching. There's one will of God. However, you can find in Owen lots of instances, just like you can in Scripture where he'll talk about the father wills, or he'll emphasize the son wills, or one of the things he does is he makes it, it's important for him to say the spirit wills. So if you're just reading that, you're like, well, wait a minute, that sounds like three wills. Yeah. Right. And that's where appropriations and some of that's very important. So, So the fact is God has one will, but the one, you know, that God's will is the will of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Yeah. And that that one will is um, clear through the Father, uh, by the Father, uh, sorry, from the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Mm. And, and so there's a distinction there, right? And but it's not, it's 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 the one will um, from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, which is an eternal single will of God, which gives no space for things like submission. Yeah. When we talk about the father willing, the son willing, the spirit willing, we don't mean, or even when we talk about the father as the principle or the father as the authority, um, that, ne- that never meant that the father is an individual isolated unit that makes a decision yeah. and then says to the son and the son says, okay, I hear what you're saying. In light of what you're saying, that makes good sense. Now I'm going to do it. Right. It's it's the one God. And so, you know, maybe later you can talk about the the, you know, covenant of redemption or however people want to talk about it. Or the, or, but here's a pastoral because this is getting pretty abstract. The reason why this matters to Owen, because people aren't sure it matters. Is test how you view the persons. Mm. Right. And so Owen makes a big deal about how often we associate the father with wrath. And the son with love. Right. And so Owen is clear. It is not that the, the father is as wrathful towards you and the son loves you. But rather, um, the, out, of, out of God's love, the father sends his son 
the sun comes and the spirit, you know, pours out that it is that triune movement of God's love um, that that gets to this fancy. The external works of the triune God are not divided. You can't have the sun. And, you know, even people who are here, you don't have to agree with Owen's view of atonement to go to better understand when he says the sun's work on the cross cross was effective for some people right not he he didn't die in this in a saving sense for the whole world now that's loaded with controversy but to understand what he's doing there he it's a trinitarian concern because if you have god loves the world christ dies for the world but then the spirit won't awaken everybody then you have a different problem right (laughs) you know so it or some will have the father wants to pour out wrath. The, it, it's just you end up with divided maverick Trinitarian persons. Yeah. And so the inseparable operation says, no, God is one. Yeah. This is this is a God who's holy, who's loving. Um, and he loves as the father, you know, through the son and by the spirit, th- yeah. this kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and do you think, Kelly, that's one of the reasons why when John Owen turns his attention then to the Christian life, he will say things like, whenever you have communion with, say, one person of the Trinity, you actually are brought into communion with the whole Godhead. Yes. Am I, am I right in saying that about, about Owen? Yeah. No, and I love that you mentioned that. I mean, that is how Owen uses that fancy term of perichoresis, right, yeah. of yeah. this mutual indwelling. That, yeah. So, and, and in fact, let's, let's circle to what we were talking about earlier. This, I think, is the answer to Gutton's concern yeah. about a God behind the gods. Yeah. Owen, in his book on communion with the triune God, is very clear, and I'd love for Christians to wrestle through this. Owen says, you never have communion with God apart from a divine person. Hmm. So there's no communion with God and then a communion with Father, Son, and Spirit. All communion with God Yeah is through the divine persons. Yeah. So you experience the presence and power of the spirit. You're, you're captured by the warmth and love of the father. You're experiencing the grace of the son. Now we would want to be careful. This, these are not divided. Right. But, but when we love God, when we pray to God, all our communion is always with the divine person because there is no God who's not a divine person. Is that right? Yeah. And, and this is even where I think, with John Owen in particular, you you begin to see how he holds simplicity in one hand, refusing to, to forfeit it, yeah, and then divine appropriations, right? So that he can say in the same breath to the Christian, "Oh, you you are your eyes are drawn to the sun." Yeah. Did you know that as you come into communion with the son, you are also coming into communion with the whole father, son, and Holy spirit, the whole Godhead. Uh, so there's where he, his, he's assuming simplicity there really has some traction. And then yeah. simultaneously, like you just mentioned, he can still then turn his attention and say, and I love the way you put this a minute ago, but uh, John Owen can, can simultaneously say, uh, Let's look at this communion with, you know, sort of our microscope. And, oh, isn't it interesting that scripture says, um, 
you have communion with the Father uh, according uh, to his love, Mm -hmm. and you have communion with the Son according to the Son's mediating grace, and you have communion with the Spirit in in a way that it so honors the Spirit as comforter, the, the consolation that the Spirit gives you. And Owen can even then, so so notice how this is, you know, appropriation concepts just kind of assumed in the way yeah. he's talking to Christian life. But then yeah. he, can, he can then speak in a very Trinitarian fashion to say, uh, the Spirit, um, the Spirit gives you a, that assurance that you uh, are are safe in the hands of the son and his grace. Why is that the case? It's because it's the case because of the father's love in, in, in which he has loved his son and he has loved you who have been united to his son. Right. Uh, it's a, it's a beautiful Trinitarian way of, you know, notice how he's moving there from, from the, the way we have communion uh, by the spirit through the son with, with the father. Well, that, uh, that, also then, and so fitting, it corresponds then to, to who those persons are, even apart from me or you, right? Um, I, I think this is so, um, it's so essential to get this right, because like you were mentioning, if we, if we start to, to mess with it, uh, well, whether it's the Christian life or, say, the atonement, like you were talking about a minute ago, yeah, there can be a tendency to start thinking that, um, you know, the father, well, he's, he's only wrath and, and, oh, thank goodness that, that Jesus isn't and that he's loving. And right. that can start to sound a bit like Marcion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I've, seen that i'm sure you have too where it starts to play into your reading of the bible and old testament versus new testament that yep. type of mindset yep. i think at this that's this where this can be quite a corrective to us to say hold on a second um yes certainly we want to do justice to uh the son and the incarnation and uh everything that's going on there and and in terms of uh you know his suffering on on the cross and, and so on, but at the same time, we we don't want to speak uh, of the work of salvation in a way that would pit the persons against each other or make one go solo, <laughs> yeah. or speak of one as if you know that person is only that attribute, and this person is is you know this attribute, and those are in conflict with one another. That would that would divide the Godhead in the worst way, I think. Um, yeah, I, and it, it's a it's a real danger. Although here's a here's an opportunity to maybe encourage listeners who are who are wrestling with this, but also thinking through it, because when people start to hear, folks, you, we need to be more trinitarian, right? Um, you know, when I tell students, <laughs> we are. I, I think two things are true at the same time. Evangelicals need to be far more trinitarian than they are. And at the same time, I actually also believe they're far more Trinitarian than they even realize, yes. right? Because experientially, they, they most people don't believe that God is triune because they've studied it. They believe it because right. they've experienced the life-giving power of the Spirit. 
they worship the son as they rest in the love of the father, right? That experientially, and they're just trying to figure out how to articulate it. Mm -hmm. Um, But having said that, so people learn, okay, the Trinity really matters. And so someone's like, okay, we're going to construct our worship service and we're going to give 33.3% of the time to the father and then, (laughs) you know, to the son, 33, and then to the spirit. I'm not good at math, but something like that, right? (laughs) And you can understand that impulse because they don't want to show favoritism or they want to make sure they're really Trinitarian. And so I want to say, listen, our theology should be God-centered, not man-centered. Yeah. Uh, our, but, and, and, and to be God-centered is to be Trinitarian. Yeah. But biblical yeah. Trinitarianism is Christ-centered. Yeah. And Owen understood this. So Owen, in his book on communion with God, if you just look at the amount of material, the, the Father is short. It's my favorite section, the Father, but it's relatively short. The Spirit is, is longer, but, and it's brilliant. Yeah. But the vast majority of the book is on the sun. And so someone looking at that from a distance might think that seems really problematic. Right. But his whole point is he still affirms Jesus, you know, the son incarnate is the fullest self-revelation of God. Yeah. So if you want to know what the father is like, you look to the son. And then similarly, the spirit is not, a, this is how he tests the spirits. The true spirit is the spirit of the son. He's the spirit of Christ. So he always points to Christ. So our Trinitarian theology is still Christ-centered. Christ-centered isn't anti-Trinitarian. It's the way to properly ground our Trinitarian theology. Yeah. Right. As long as you understand divine simplicity and inseparable operations and those kind of things. Yeah. And Kelly, this is is an important uh, clarification that you're making because um, when we read our Bibles, um, more often than not, especially when we get, you know, the closer we get to the advent of the son of God incarnate. Mm -hmm. Well, the the author's intention is certainly to draw our focus and the church's focus to uh, who this Jesus is and what he has done. And uh, part of the reason for that is it's focusing us on the history of redemption. And well, uh, naturally, that then is going to draw our attention to, to Jesus Christ, and so there's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, I, this is this. Hopefully, this is along the lines of what you're saying. I mean, there's nothing to be ashamed of in saying there's a certain um, Christological center and focus yep. that the canon drives us towards, and that is not something that just appears in the New Testament. This this is a unified canon. So as soon as we open our Old Testament, we start to see it point in that direction. Um, and, and in large part, the reason for that is because of, of Scripture's focus on the history of salvation. Now, like you're mentioning, that doesn't mean, though, that we've just abandoned divine simplicity or we don't focus on the Father or we don't focus on the Holy Spirit. No, of course, when we're then uh, interpreting this salvific work, yes, absolutely. This is the one triune God, uh, who Father, Son, and Spirit, who have indivisibly accomplished this great work of salvation. And yet, as you mentioned, as John Owen talks about, they've they've done this in a way that is both faithful to the singularity of their essence, and yet at the same time uh, draws our attention. To how this work of salvation is is from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Now, depending on you know where we are in Scripture, 
or where our gaze is at that particular moment, even in, during the life of Jesus, during his ministry, that phrase from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, we might be focusing on, on one aspect of it. Okay, it's Pentecost. So now we're, we're, our, our attention is really going to be drawn to that last bit by the Spirit, uh, and for good reason, too. Now, of course, we may need to remind people that that doesn't mean we've abandoned inseparable operations or the indivisibility of, of the. Well, can I, let me jump in there because that, that's a great example. So with Pentecost, you have the spirit and you have Jesus, you know, telling people in the upper room discourse, telling the disciples, listen, I'm going to be sending this comforter, this helper. Right. And you get Pentecost. But one of the questions that fits into with what you're saying is. We know the spirit is a comforter. How does he comfort? Yeah. And it's very interesting. This is a test case. We often take that in purely psychological categories. Uh, so the spirit is a comforter and it just kind of makes us feel better. Yeah. I actually yeah. think the spirit can do that, yeah. but that's not really what the scriptures are talking about. Yeah. The yeah. fundamental way the spirit brings comfort is yeah. by reminding you of the things of Christ. That's right. He's reminding you who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Yeah. He's applying the work of Christ to your life. So the comfort of the spirit is not a separate thing. It's the comfort of God, right? That was, that is ours sent from the father, accomplished through the son and applied to us by the spirit. Yeah. So it is, we, we, we praise the spirit for what he's doing as he's reminding us, as he's applying to us, the very personal work of Christ. Yeah. Right? But that's an example. If you don't, if you don't have simple, whether you want to call it simplicity, if you don't have a robust doctrine of the Trinity, it's more like, let's focus on the spirit comforting for a while. Yeah. But if you're doing that and you're not talking about Jesus, you're still in trouble. And it can also start sounding like Sabellianism or modalism, right? Right. As if, okay, God's decided to, you know, transform himself into the spirit at this point. So we're going to talk about the spirit. Yeah. We're in the age of the spirit now. Yeah. This is the, the age of the, the spirit. Are gone. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at the way, whether it's a John Owen or others and Augustine, when when they talk, when they you know focus, so to speak, on on say the spirit, for example, they always do so uh, with inseparable operations or and divine simplicity in the background. And so so they will say, yeah. yes, okay, let's talk about the spirit at Pentecost, but let's not forget, Scripture also says this is the spirit of Christ. <laughs> And so why, what is the spirit doing to Pentecost? Oh, he is, this comes out in Peter's sermon, right? Immediately in Acts 2, there's good reason why then Peter can turn his attention and say, in light of what you've seen of the spirit, trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and then he calls them to repentance. Peter's right to do so because he is assuming, like you said, sometimes we overthink it. He's just, he's just thinking and assuming this, this Trinitarian lens uh, that Owen in, in his book is, is kind of fleshing out, uh, you know, in great detail. Yeah. I, one other just quick example. I mean, this, this is a whole different one, but one of the things that's brilliant about what Owen does in his work, Pneumologia on the Holy Spirit is he really emphasizes the Spirit's work in the life and ministry of Jesus mm -hmm. and the humanity of Jesus. So, you know, when Mark, you kind of see this in Mark where, you know, Jesus is baptized, and then he, he actually uses the language that the Spirit, that he is thrust into the wilderness, right? He's driven yeah. into the wilderness by the Spirit. 
And part of what really helped me with Owen is I realized in some of my you know background with evangelicalism and et cetera, we emphasize the spirit with the virgin birth. But then really besides that, and that's kind of to say, okay, that way Jesus doesn't sin or something, virgin birth. And then we don't really talk about spirit till Pentecost. Yeah, it disappeared. Yeah, but with inseparable operate, you know, that's fancy language. What you find in the gospels is yeah, he's the one filled with the spirit beyond measure. That's you right. You can't understand the life and work of Jesus. You'll undermine the full humanity of Jesus if you don't have a robust view of the spirit. So so this isn't, again, like you're saying, this isn't Sabellianism. This isn't, you know, Old Testament father, New Testament son. Then we have the spirit. It's true the father doesn't become incarnate and the spirit doesn't become incarnate. But that it is misunderstanding to say that you have a divine maverick doing something on, you know. Um, so even the spirit in the life of Jesus is crucial. And I don't think we tend to talk much about that. You're right. We don't. And and we could. That's where we, we need to improve. You know, uh, this is one of the reasons why, you know, even Hebrews, you know, we've been talking about the Gospels and but Hebrews, for example, will talk about the cross and, you know, has a lot to say about Jesus as high priest. But notice Hebrews will emphasize Jesus goes to the cross by the spirit. Yeah. Uh, so he's not this like, you know, maverick, like you're saying that, you know, goes across by himself again. And Hebrews, I, I just real quick, Hebrews has that really weird verse where it talks about even that, that, that Tony death is by the quote, eternal spirit. That's right. So like what, is, you know, what is going on there? But that's, again, he's framing it in those triune ways. That's exactly right. I, I think this is one of the reasons why on the one hand, we have good scriptural reasons to say, okay, we can talk about, say, redemption accomplished by the Son or redemption applied, like you did a minute ago, redemption applied by the Holy Spirit. And we might even say uh, that's appropriate to say those things because that is fitting. It corresponds with the Son is begotten from the Father. And and so, yes, the Father sends the Son, uh, not because he's lesser in some way or subordinate in some way. No, he sends the Son then to accomplish this, this great work. And likewise with the spirit, we can, we can, we can say uh, the spirit uh, applies uh, this great work that Christ has purchased. Owen loves to speak this right way, right? But Christ is one purchased, secured, the spirit then applies this within us. And we see that from indwelling to regeneration, to even sanctification. Um, That's also fitting because Remember, this is the same Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. So we can we can speak those way those ways, right? I mean, Augustine spoke this way of you know, the Father is the architect and the Son is the Redeemer and the Spirit is the Perfector or Sanctifier. But they, whether it's Augustine or own, in light of what whether it's a book like Hebrews or uh, you know the Gospels, they they are always doing this, assuming, and at times treating. Um, divine simplicity and separable operations so that they can say, yes, yes, the spirit applies redemption, but remember the spirit does this because this is the spirit of Christ. Uh, this is the spirit sent from the father and the son to apply, to pu- apply what, what the son has accomplished within us. We have to say both of those. Yeah. Um, we don't want to compromise either. Um, but we, I think in the church today, you're right. I think in the church today, um, we, we struggle to do that. And, um, we either, we sometimes we'll do it and we'll compromise one for the sake of the other. 
So, you know, this is, this is where I think John Owen can be so helpful to say, well, look, here's an example of someone who wouldn't forfeit either one. Um, and yet he's going to have a deeply robust doctrine of Trinity and still talk about salvation and the Christian life in a way that does, that does justice to both. Um, if we're reading Owen right, I suppose. <laughs> well, I, 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 I mean, I think I, the, his book is on communion with Christ and God is the most significant book shaping my own theology yeah. and life. And um, I, I do think he gets the ability to take the profound and always see the pastoral. Yeah. And I think his Christological focus is actually quite helpful yeah. in protecting against various errors in this um, and then his insights on the Son and the Spirit, I mean, they remain as relevant now. On the Father and the Spirit, it remain as relevant now as ever. So, Kelly, maybe that's a, a, a good way to, to wrap up our conversation. Uh, it, it, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, my book, uh, Simply Trinity, but um, I want to kind of throw this, you know, I, I want to throw this back on you and, and mm-hmm. draw, you know, those who are watching and, and listening uh, their attention to some of the things you've done. Um, if, if I can just, you know, recommend a few, a few things you've done, uh, of course you've written books on the Trinity itself. Uh, I, I think for example, your book, the God who gives, mm. um, goodness, uh, talk about a book that actually embodies in many ways, kind of the spirit of Owen as, as he's reflecting on the Trinity, but then also, uh, the Christian life. Uh, I would say to people out there, if you want to read, you know, more on, John Owen, you got to pick up the book that Kelly edited. Um, I think it's just called Communion with the Trinity, published by Crossway, I believe. Yeah, Communion with the Triune God. Yeah. Commun- Communion with the Triune God. Yeah. As you know, Owen's title is like three sentences yeah. long. So that was our, that's not actually his title, but that's yeah. the abbreviation. <laughs> I know. I know. People always ask, well, what's the name of that book? It's like, well, what title do you want? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The one word or the three paragraph title? Yeah, yeah. You, you read the, the longer title. You you sort of read the book. <laughs> um, so so those those two in particular are, are um, I, I would say pick up both of those. You you'll simultaneously get you know what Kelly's writing about on the train, but then you're also getting John Owen, and you have a great um, Kelly. You have a great uh, introduction. Um, at the beginning of of that book, communion with with Triune God, that that introduction itself, this Owen can be hard to read at times. Yeah, the introduction is is so helpful as almost a, an interpretive guide, yeah. I think. Um, and then also, if I can sneak one more in there, uh, one more in there because you've written so many good ones. Uh, Kelly has a a little book. It's literally called a little book for uh, new theologians. Uh, why and how to study theology. Uh, I remember picking this book up uh, not not too long ago, Kelly, and um, it is a little book, and it is profound. It, it's mm. in, in such a short space. You know, I think, for example, of like Athanasius on the Incarnation or Anselm's shorter writings, you know, yeah. you're, you're kind of uh, taking on that, that writing approach mm. to say, okay, Here's a hundred pages, uh, and I'm going to get right to it and show you uh, what theology is all about. But in a, you do it in, in, in a very John Owen 
way of, of saying, okay, this this actually has a theology actually has quite a bit to do with everything from the Christian life to worship itself. Uh, That's very kind. I'll pay you later. Yeah. <laughs> with the with the five cents I get from each copy that sells now. Thank you. You mean you're not getting you're not getting rich from these? I, I thought I don't even know what I get out of those to be honest. But whatever. Uh, but thank you. That's very kind. Yeah, that, that's well, great. I, this I has really been fun. Yeah. Yeah. This has been great, and I really do do recommend those. I mean, those are books I've been so helped by, and uh, I, I hope others others will as well. Um, well, I hope your book continues to to go gangbusters. I, I think it is spreading, and I think it's it's actually creating some healthy discussion, even some debate, but uh, really helping, particularly an evangelical audience, to better understand some of their roots and their yeah. heritage. Yeah. And they thought some of it was older than it actually was. Some of what they've been taught is fairly recent, and to reintroduce them to the fathers, to the Puritans, some others, I think, is very helpful. So... Thanks so much, friend. Absolutely. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation a conversation where doctrine matters.